Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Head to Total, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on all things medicine, everything from the administrative questions that you have to the surgical questions that you have when you see your physician. Uh, I'm excited because we've got, uh, we've talked Dr. Steve Mendelson back to coming back with us and talking to us about robotic joint replacement, which is something new. It's cutting edge as with everything with Dr. Steve. So welcome back, Dr. Steve Mendelson. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I have heard about you is your hip replacements done with robotically, which I think a lot of people do, don't understand, right? How do you do a robotic hip? What, what happens there? So um, the goal of a joint replacement is to select the right patient, put the right component in, the right implant in, and put it in the right alignment. To do that, we used to use uh, what I would say are standard carpentry jigs, which are very good most of the time. We use uh, alignment rods, we use saws, we use routers, um, we use uh, reamers, and they would do a wonderful job most of the time. But somewhere between t- 5 to 10% of the time, we would find that the alignment of our uh, implants wasn't perfect. Bent one way a little bit, bent one way another way a little bit, rotated a little bit. And so we've been, as in orthopedics, we've been really trying hard to figure out how can we decrease this variation. So along comes the robot. And what we're able to do is either through an MRI or a CAT scan or special kind of techniques, we can input into our computer system the exact dimensions of your knee. And when we go to do our surgery, we place special kinds of trackers on your body and that allows us to and the computer to know exactly where your knee is in space exactly what angle every part of the knee is at and we can plan to make cuts that not only are precise but also take into account the unique knee you have so everybody's knee sits a little differently everybody's knee has a different amount of play if you will and the computer with our simulation we're able to predict and and place where those cuts should be, how much bone we should take off, how much we should put back in order to get you with a very nicely balanced knee that is right for your body. Now, to execute that, that information goes into a robot. And so while I, the surgeon, am doing the case, I am using the robot to help me make exactly those precisely uh, identical cuts that we wanted with the surgical plan. Now, I have to be there. I would love to be somewhere else. I would love to be in Florida, but I have to be there because there is a a very important, it's a tool. It's a tool. And sometimes the tool is perfect and most times it is, but you need a surgeon there to um, pick up if there's something a little unusual to help guide it. And the robot though, I will tell you, has been wonderful. If I look at my x-rays now, when I do knee replacements, they're perfect. They're like exactly where I wanted them to be. You know, we know not everyone who has a total knee does well. Some people have problems. Some people have pain. And the last thing you want as a surgeon is to say, gee, if I had put the knee in just a little straighter, uh, they wouldn't have that pain. So here, you know, if I do one, if I do 10, I know every knee is going to be where I want it to be. And that is wonderful. Uh, it, It is just such a leap forward in the technology of joint replacement, it's, and frankly, it's, it's, we've learning a lot. We're learning even more every day from our robots about how, how knees move. Because when we do the operation, the robot helps us capture 
all of this information about how the knee bent, how it turned, what components we put in, that's fed into a national database. And so now all over the country, we're learning, hey, these are how all these knees were done. And we follow them over time to see which one succeeded, which one didn't. And so that's really the the proof uh, that we can all learn from. It sounds like the ideal situation is to go from the the stimulator, right, as a first step. And then eventually if I my, my bad days outweigh my good days, I come to you and I say, hey, let's take the next step. Let's replace a joint and then have that in there for, for the getting better part. Right. I mean, that, that way I'm not taking any Motrin or anything. You're one step ahead of where we are in the technology now. I'm still trying to limit the stimulators to people who aren't good candidates for knee replacements. I think that's where we are. I think that's where I'm most comfortable using it. Because today, a well-chosen patient who has a well-performed knee replacement has a very high likelihood of having 20, 25 years worth of, if not pain-free, very low pain. But you take someone who maybe is their diabetes isn't controlled, or maybe they have neuropathy, or maybe they have dialysis, or maybe they have you know very strong blood thinners. Now, you operate on that person, and their risk of complication goes up. So they're not a great candidate. They're the ones for stimulators. Now, I would say probably I would predict 10 to 20% of my stimulator people will correct some aspect of their risk factor and fall out of this, you know, high morbidity and be able to be within a safe zone to have the knee replacement. Uh, maybe people have had kidney transplants. Uh, then they become candidates for uh, having standard knee replacements. I think that's where I'm at with it now. Do I think that the stimulators will change? Will we learn more? It's possible. We may learn that we can do them uh, for people who are bridging. You know, they're not ready for a knee replacement, but they're bridging to that zone. There are um, techniques where we can put them in for uh, a short period of time, 60, 90 days, and people can have relief. We were exploring that for people actually who've had uh, fractures, right? If you break a knee and it hurts you, we can put a stimulator that can substantially cut down on that pain for the, let's say, uh, six weeks to six months while you're healing, and then it's removed. These are options we're exploring, but I think a lot of it is we're going to learn more as we do more of our peripheral nerve stimulators. Dr. Steve, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the expectations when I get a total joint replaced, whether you do it robotically or or the uh, what I'll call the old way, right? What am I going to have? I, I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to get a brand new knee. I'm going to have a whole new life. It's going to be great. I'm going to be bionic. I'm going to run miles. Uh, what really are the expectations that I should be going into a total joint surgery. You know, you break people down into different categories. There is our seniors uh, who, you know, their expectation is to walk and to be able to get around walking. And I think for many of those persons, it's a truly an amazing operation. It is restorative. It's uh, uplifting. It removes the pain. It allows them to um, forget that they have a knee. And that's a wonderful thing. As the younger a person gets and the more athletic they are, they are, the more it can be challenging because their expectations to be able to run and to run exactly the same as they did before and to have the same endurance is not always matched by a total knee. Some of the restrictions we know are deep knee bending can be very difficult. So if you're a catcher, if you're a goalie, 
Uh, if you are genuflexing in church, if you're prostrating yourself in the mosque, that can be hard because a total knee doesn't do that so well. Um, so that's some of the expectations we have to manage. The other part of it is 90 to 95% of people have a total knee. They do wonderfully. They're happy. They may make some activity modifications, right? They may not go run like they used to exactly the same, or they may uh, perhaps not engage in soccer at the same intensity level, but they do well. Uh, but there's a subset of people who still have discomfort. And if you have a total knee and you're not doing well, it can be very frustrating. And I learned this because, you know, a person sees their surgeon, they have a total knee, everything looks good on the x-rays. They go seek second opinions from other doctors. Any of the doctor is going to say, well, this looks good or, well, it's a millimeter off here and there. But basically, it's where it should be. And they still have discomfort. That is where I got most interested in trying to solve that problem. And that's what led me to stimulators. Um, I started talking with some people who are in California who were exploring how do we treat total knee people who still have pain. And they tried bracing and surgeons would say, you know what, we're going to just revise the whole knee. And oh my God, to have a revision knee is a big deal, especially if you don't have a clear problem. So I said, let's, let's try nerve stimulation for this. Um, and lo and behold, I was able to really help people. I mean, people who for years had had pain from their total knee and had gone from doctor to doctor to doctor. Um, and everyone's saying it looks fine, but they just weren't feeling good. There's something about a subset of people when you cut into them and you do surgery, they heal on the outside, but their nerves remain tingly and uncomfortable, and they can't always put it in words. They'll say things like, ah, my knee feels heavy. It feels tight. It feels like I just can't move it the way I want. It feels uh, burning. Those are the people that, you know, orthopedics from a mechanical perspective doesn't have a great solution for. So I said, let's look outside that box at an electrical solution. And so that's one of the things I see uh, frequently for stimulators. I have within my group and outside of my group and through the, through the uh, internet, people will come to me because they have a painful need that looks good and they're uncomfortable and they're, they want to try another option. That's how I got into stimulation. So Steve, a little bit more about the process of the neuromodulation, the, the stimulator. You, you said that it gets inserted into underneath the skin. Nobody will see it. Nobody knows I have it. But what's that like for the patient? Are you are you putting us completely under? Uh, how big is the incision? What's that look like? Well, we have uh, different patients with different needs. So um, there are people who, um, for whom general anesthesia are going to sleep is the right choice. And a person goes to sleep. We place the stimulators through very small straws or cannulas. They're uh, probably about the size of a, um, when you get a mixed drink and you have that little straw you stir with, but you can't suck the fluid through. That's the size of the cannula that we percutaneously or through a little nick in the skin use to go down to the nerve. And then we slide in the uh stimulator that little piece of spaghetti or angel hair through that. We have patients who maybe are not, they don't want to go to sleep. They want to be a little relaxed. We give them sedation, which might be the equivalent of having, you know, five or six drinks and you're there, but you're happy. And we use some local anesthetic to numb that area and put in our stimulators. And I have people for whom uh, even sedation is risky and they don't want it. And we will do those completely under a local anesthetic. I will numb the entire field. I will numb the entire area. 
And without any kind of drugs in the system beyond the local anesthetic, I will go ahead and put those little cannulas to the areas I need to and place the stimulators. Am I in a surgery center? Am I in a hospital? Am I in your office? Am I in your living room? Where am I at? Uh, We do this typically most of the time in a surgical center. We don't do it in a hospital for a variety of reasons. Certainly hospitals and COVID are uh, a concern. Also, frankly, this is a procedure that the acuity or the intensity of it is much less than a invasive surgery. You know, the risk of infection is, I haven't had an infection, that's not to say it can't happen, but very low. The blood loss is essentially zero. The difference between that and maybe a hip replacement where you're having blood loss and other kinds of things you need to have, backups and all kinds of uh, equipment, that's different. But here, no, we do them most of the in the surgery center. There are occasions when we can do them in a procedure room in an office, but that's rare. That's rare. We do have in the foot, we'll do a little bit more of those. We'll have some people who are really, um, you know, brittle diabetics or have bad COPD, and we can just percutaneously through a little nick in the office, slide in one of the trials. We can also slide in one of the permanent stimulators. Dr. Steve, can't thank you enough. Yet again, another podcast where you have wowed us with all things uh, orthopedics and seriously total joint replacement with a robotic hip, with a robotic knee, with a robotic shoulder. It's just amazing. The recovery time, so much shorter. Uh, I can't thank you enough for all the help that you provided us today. My pleasure.